Thank you. As we wish Pastor Kurt a good vacation, we're thankful to have such able leadership in his absence. We're here today not to hear from man, but to hear from God. It matters not the size of our gathering. It matters the size of our affections to hear from our Creator. That's the ground of our hope. It's the ground of our reason for worship. It's the reason that we come together. And so whether this looks like a lot of people or a few people to you is immaterial to our purpose. Our purpose is we are here to hear from God. And how do we hear from God? By His Holy Word. Amen? I want you to turn to the back of the book with me, the book of Revelation. And I want you to open to the 14th chapter in the 6th verse. And I want you, out of reverence for hearing from God, I want you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. You can follow along on the screen, but I think it's more powerful if you look at the written words on the page. There's pew Bibles provided. It's very close to the end of the book, just a few pages from the end. A few pages from the last grace-based word in the Bible, Revelation 22:21, where grace is pronounced for God's people. And we hear today, before the end... We hear from God via His angels. Listen to Revelation 14, 6 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds. Follow them. You may be seated. As we come together to hear from God by His Word this morning, we are looking at Revelation 14, 6 through 13. And our title today is God's Eternal Gospel. God's Eternal Gospel. We're going to see, first, God's Eternal Gospel projected. Then we're going to see God's Eternal Gospel rejected. And finally, we're going to see God's eternal gospel accepted, projected, rejected, accepted. If you want to see how this falls along the lines of the text, you can look at it. Verses 6 and 7, we see God's eternal gospel projected. And in verses 
8 through 11, we see God's eternal gospel rejected. And then finally, in Revelation 14, 12, and 13, those last two verses, we see the promises when the eternal gospel is accepted. Now, let's take it to begin with, in verses 6 and 7, God's eternal gospel projected. I need to take just a brief step back, and we need to consider the landscape of the book of Revelation. As I've said often, not as a puzzle to put together like a jigsaw, but a picture to see of what God's doing in the world. Not as a consecutive chronology necessarily, but rather as cycles, seven of them in the book of Revelation, where we see the same history unfolding in, from different directions, different hues, different colors to paint this picture of this flower coming into full bloom of God's final judgment. What God is doing is redeeming for himself a people, a people that have accepted his eternal gospel. And when we come to this point in Revelation, Revelation chapter 14, we are in the midst of yet another batch of a cycle of seven. Revelation 12 to 14 shares the following data points. The dragon, then the woman, then the beast, then the false prophet, then the 144,000, then the angelic announcers, and then that's where we are today. And finally, the Son of Man returning in glory. And we've seen this story before. We've seen it before. We, we saw it with the seven trumpets. We hear of it with the seven seals. We know of it with the seven bowls. This letter, the letter was written to seven churches, Revelation was, when John wrote this letter from the Isle of Patmos as he received these visions. While he was imprisoned, he received these visions on the Lord's Day and wrote them down and gave them to the churches. He gives them to us. And so we come to a point in Revelation relative to the middle of it, past the middle third, and we come to these seven symbolic histories. And that's how Vernon Poitras explains it in his commentaries. The dragon, the woman, the beast, the false prophet, the 144,000 redeemed, and the angelic announcers, and the return of the Son of Man. And so the angelic announcers is Revelation 14, 6 through 13. And we dive into our first look at this now, our first point, God's eternal gospel accepted. And as I said a minute ago, God's eternal gospel has to be accepted in order for us to spend eternity with the Lord. This message must be proclaimed or projected. So what is it that we are projecting? Well, it's the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, there are a lot of ways the gospel can be described, but one way that I've found helpful in sharing the gospel with people that lack clarity on the subject of the gospel is God-man-Christ response. I found it helpful over the years, so let me just share that with you in brief. God created us. Man rebelled against God. Christ came in the fullness of time and died as our substitute sacrifice that if we would respond in accepting His sacrifice, then we would have eternal life with God. So God, man, Christ, response. It's a summary of the gospel. And if you've never heard that before, or you haven't committed that to memory, you might commit those four words to memory as a very brief explanation of the gospel. Now, we could quote many verses because I believe the whole Bible is about the gospel. So there's, there's voluminous verses that we could quote to explain the gospel, to explain those four waypoints, God, man, Christ, response. But suffice to say, for this very moment, 
that gospel must be accepted in order to spend eternity with the Lord. There, there is no other way. As much as humanity throughout history has tried to make another way, and we're going to talk about that over the course of this sermon, there is no other way. The Bible says in the book of Acts poignantly that there is no other name under heaven whereby a man must be saved, must be saved by the name of Jesus. And this is his gospel, his good news. It's good news for whoever would accept it. And as I do in each sermon, I like to share the gospel, not only for the believers, because we need it every single week. We're sinners just like you. But I also like to share it with the unbeliever whenever the time is right in the sermon. And so I deem this a time to share it with you. If you thus far have been a rejecter of the gospel, we're going to talk about the gospel in our second point this morning. But I want to share with you very briefly that it's not a complicated thing for you to become an acceptor of the gospel. If the Lord is working on you, if he opens your eyes to see the gospel as true, you need not reject it any longer. Come join us by accepting it. And accepting it is not based on an outward sign. Accepting it is based on the inward work of the Spirit inside of you. Nobody would authentically accept the gospel that I've explained to you this morning as God, man, Christ response without the help of God. The Bible makes clear it's only by revelation that you receive this revelation. There's no other way. So if the Lord is working on you, in a sense, you can get out of your head about it. If this makes sense to you, if you come here this morning and it is not, it's not curmudgeonly or off-putting to you for us to worship God and to hear from God by this book, and if you would accept this gospel that God made you, you rebelled against Him, and Christ died in your place, if you would accept it by responding to it in faith and accepting it, you are an acceptor just like us. There's no outside looking in. Christ is still in the redemption business until, until He returns to claim His own or until you breathe your last breath. He's still in the business of redeeming souls. And so I want you to know today that this gospel is to be accepted. It's to be accepted. Now, let's look at the text because I've done quite a bit of, of talking, of sharing here already. Let's, let's get into the meat and marrow of the text. It says in verse 6, that there was an angel flying overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim. That's where I'm getting the title of this sermon, an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. So in verse 6, that, that quad, nation, tribe, language, and people, is a, a way of saying to everybody, to the uttermost ends of the earth, to, to everybody. So that's where I get the idea that this eternal gospel must be projected. You, you look, if you look at the screen, a message is being projected on the screen where everybody in the house can see it, right? So that's the, that's the illustration I'm, I'm grasping for as I say that this, this gospel needs to be projected to the whole world. And certainly God can use angelic figures, can use angels, of which Hebrews tells us are innumerable. There are many, many angels. Bible also tells us that angels... You never know, you might be entertaining angels. Hebrews 13 says, so we should always practice Christian hospitality one to another. And we should love our neighbor because you never know who you might be entertaining. But with regard to angels, they are not the only ones that are supposed to be proclaiming this message. In fact, we don't get as much data about that. They sort of celebrate when the message that we proclaim is received. The Bible says that there's more celebration in heaven by the angels over one lost sheep that's brought back to the fold than over 99 that were already there. So we, we want to project this gospel far and wide, and we are the people that are supposed to be projecting. The Bible says in Corinthians we are ambassadors 
of Christ in this, that we are to share this gospel, this gospel with everyone, indiscriminately, with every kind of person, to every nation. So however proud we can become of our citizenship in America, it can never become a hindrance to our heart to share the gospel with other nations. We must share it with every people type, every person, every type of person. Every nation on earth needs to hear the gospel. The Bible says that the gospel will be preached to all nations and then the end will come. Let us be encouraging that spread, that projection. Let's be a part of it. One pastor has famously said that when it comes to missions, we either go or we send or we disobey. Either we're in the business of going to take the gospel or we're in the business of sending people to take the gospel or we're disobedient. Another pastor said that delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. We can't delay for optimal or somewhat perfect time to support the global message that needs to be projected. We must support now with our means now. And so let us be among those that not only affirm the gospel in word, but also support the gospel indeed through giving to the gospel going forward. And this is not a stump speech for you to pad the offering. I'm saying let's support global missions. Our church does that. You do that as well. Do it through our church. Do it individually. Do it every chance you get. Get the gospel out. It needs to be projected to everyone. Now, with regard to projecting, God uses us to share that gospel. And I want to say something about this, the, the word configuration about eternal gospel to proclaim. Eternal gospel to proclaim. The, the configuration here is euangelion, ionion, euangelizai. Euangelion, Ionion, Euangelizide. And you say, well, that's all Greek to me. It is Greek, but there's something to share that I think is valuable or I wouldn't read it. You know I don't do that very often. It's the noun form of gospel and then a word that means eons, Ionion, forever and ever. And then it's the verb form of gospel. That's what comes to you in English as eternal gospel to proclaim. So I was kind of playing with this like gospel forever gospeled. Or gospel can be translated good news. So good news forever reported as the goodness of news that it is. Like, that's, the, that's the makeup here. It, it's, a, it's an interesting configuration in Greek. It doesn't quite carry forward in English with the zest that I, that I was hoping that it would. Eternal gospel to proclaim, it says a lot, but the ring to the language in Greek really brings it forward. Gospel forever gospeled. Good news forever reported as good news. This is not the gospel that's just getting us home. This is the gospel that's forever gospely. It's forever good. We, we will never, ever, 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 ever outgrow or move beyond the, 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 the goodness and the grandeur of God's work in Christ for us that is the gospel. It, it's not something we get past. And the angel's proclaiming this, it says, and it needs to be projected. And there's, there's some imperatives here. I want you to look at verse 7. It says, And he said with a loud voice, angel, he, it's a masculine voice, fear God and give glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who has made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water. Now we could spend the hour on that, but we won't. Let me just kind of give you the lay of that sentence structure. Angel, loud voice, there are three imperatives. You might want to highlight them. They're imperative verbs. Fear, 
give, and worship. The, above it, eternal gospel to proclaim. To proclaim was an infinitive. The construction of that verb brought our title, but these imperatives bring our applications. Look, fear, give, and worship. So this eternal gospel is to be projected, and part of, part of projecting that gospel, or, I'm sorry, it's to be, it's to be, this gospel is to be projected, but part of accepting that gospel that's being projected is we actually must embrace the repentance aspect of the gospel. The gospel calls us to repent of our sin. That may sound obvious to many, but it's controversial to some, and so I want to drill for just one minute. Fundamental to Christ having to die on the cross is something caused him to have to go there. He didn't go to the cross as a simple moral exemplar, as some have said. The way that sense is made of books in the Old Testament, like Leviticus, the blood of bulls and goats, the way that in light of the newness of the new covenant, in light of the book of Hebrews, the way we make sense of the sacrificial system that was very much operative for God's people Israel under the Mosaic covenant, the way we understand it today is that Christ was the sacrifice that all of those those, those killed, slain lambs was pointing to. So our Yom Kippur, our Day of Atonement is in Christ. So, so there's, there is, it's not only that there's no need to reestablish the sacrificial system, it's sort of insulting to the Lamb with a capital L to indulge such a thought. I mean, it was all pointing to the newness of a new covenant in Christ. And we are saved by the blood of the Lamb. One Lamb, capital L, Jesus Christ, right? Are you looking to salvation some other way? All the redeemed saints of old that have seen what they've seen now, what they've seen, I feel confident would compel them to say it was all about Christ. It was all about the Lamb. By the way, Lambology, the study of Lamb, Lamb is prolific in the book of Revelation. It's prolific. It's not an afterthought. The allusions to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, well, it's replete with it. There's one usage that's referring to the Antichrists, and that's, we talked about that two weeks ago. But by and large, 28 out of 29 times, Lamb is referring to Christ. So this, this Lamb is to be worshipped. This Lamb is central to the gospel and the sacrifice that was made for us is once and for all, it must be received, and it needs to be projected to everyone. And there are some imperatives here because of repentance. He was hung on that cross to atone for sin, and that is not sin ethereally, it's sin practically, specifically, your sins and mine. He died as an atoning sacrifice not for sinners, but people who sin as sinners. Not just sinners like in a blanket term. Yes, he did die for sinners. But he died for people who sin. In, in, in other words, every redeemed person of the Lord has every ounce of their hope rooted in the active and passive obedience of Christ and rooted in his obedience to be hung on a cross as a sacrificial lamb in atonement for our sins. And if you don't hope in that, you have no hope. That's the whole thing. The gospel that is to be projected is the lamb sacrificed for us. 
And so that requires repentance because when you, when you begin to, to, to think about the ramifications of this gospel that's been made free to you but was very costly to the Father, when you begin to think about it, you, you can't continue to, to have affection for your sinful ways of life. You must repent. You can't continue to, to coddle the besetting sins in your life. You have to, you have to attack them and, 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 and in community... You have to, 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 to develop a disdain for them. What you, how could you not? Because that, as it's revealed to you by God's Word, through the Spirit, that's exactly the sort of thing that put Jesus on the cross. So this gospel must be rejected. It's, it's why a loud voice would say, fear God. Fear, an imperative. Fear is a very real phenomenon in our world today, among Christians even. You know, I was reading an article by David Murray just a few weeks ago, and he said he pointed out to me that Uversion Bible app that the most researched word is fear from the Bible. The most looked at verse is about overcoming fear. So fear is a is a very real phenomenon amongst Christians, I'm sure always, but especially today. Especially today. And Fear, indeed, is overcome through God's Word. That, that is the truth. But we must trust Him, right? The Bible says, fear God and keep His commandments. So there is a, a reverential fear that repentant people have toward God. We're, we're not flippant when we come in here to worship. Like we, it's just not just some jovial thing we come in here. To, we're coming to hear from God. That requires reverence. Of course there's fellowship things and there's out in the foyer where you know, we're rubbing elbows and shaking hands and talking and hugging. We love each other. I'm not saying it's this serious to a fault as if God didn't create fellowship and didn't create kindness. But which comes first? Which is tertiary and which is primary? When you come in here, we're coming in here as God's people to hear from God. I offer a brief message to unbelievers every Sunday, but this is not for unbelievers primarily. This is for us. This is the Lord's Day. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And we gather to hear from our Maker. That is the ground of the Gospel. This text tells us that the reason that you should give God glory, which is have a weightiness toward God, the reason that you should worship God and not the beast and His currency, the reason that you should... Fear God. It's grounded in the fact that He made you and everything that you consume and everything that you see and beyond. Fundamental to the gospel is God as creator, as maker. The reason that the angel says freely, and we project freely that you should fear God and give God glory and worship God, the reason we have an imperative tone toward repentance our message is applicatory in that way, is because of Creator God. He made you. That's what this verse says in verse 7. Worship Him who made heaven, earth, the sea, and the springs of water, the fresh and the salt water. That, that quad could have been summed up with three. Could have been sum, summed up with the first three. But that quad is saying God created everything. Everything that you can fathom, He made it all. And so, this is an eternal gospel that must be projected. We must tell it to anyone that will listen and some that won't. And we must tell it to them 
because God has commanded us. We must tell it to them because without it, they will forever be separated from God. We must tell it to them as an act of obedience. We must tell it to them as an act of compassion. There is no other message by which men will be saved from wrath. We're not born neutral before God. We are born into our sin. And in the lineage of our first parents, Adam and Eve, we deserve the same punishment that they deserve east of Eden. So the only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if, if we come to terms with that and the implications of the, of the call to repent and believe this gospel, then we will increasingly share it with others because we will know there's no other hope besides it. So this eternal gospel must be projected, number one. Number two, this eternal gospel must be or this, this eternal gospel will be rejected. Not just that it will be projected by us, it will be rejected by some. And this is what the great rejectors into eternity, this is, this is what they look like. It's what it sounds like. It's, it's what it was lived like. Now, this is a coming judgment. It's, if you're thinking in seals, between the sixth and the seventh seals, it's angels ushering in the final words. And so there is some overlapping language here between of the gospel that can be shared to be accepted and the gospel that has been shared and has been rejected. I freely admit that. I preach the first point as if it is a call, and that is somewhat disputed. But I'm preaching the second point as if it has been rejected and what that rejection looks like. So it says here, another angel, a second one, followed the first one saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now just one, just one sentence... Just one verse, but a lot to unpack. Let's stare at it for just, just a bit. The second angel is saying, Fallen, fallen, Babylon the great. So, so who is Babylon? What are we talking about when we talk about Babylon? Well, we're talking about the enemy of Judah. right? You remember the great exile of God's people. And Babylon used as an instrument of the Lord to punish God's people, but also punished for punishing God's people with such rigor and such disrespect. Babylon was the great evil, the great, the great, great wicked enemy of God's people, Israel. Uh, Babylon is not situated as a space and time by itself. Babylon is a phrase that carries freight across the millennia. So consider early Babel. You remember in Genesis 11 the story of the Tower of Babel. And just the shorthand version of the story is people wanted to unite, refused to spread out, and they wanted to build a tower to get to heaven. In other words, they wanted to create a gospel their own way. They wanted to do it themselves. And do you recall what God did? It's recorded in Genesis 11 to the Tower of Babel. He destroyed it, and what did he do with the people? He, he scattered them to the ends of the earth, which creates quite a bit of, of a juxtaposition with Pentecost, right? As he brings people back together under a common language, a spirit language. So to consider that is interesting indeed. But Babel and Babylon and the language pattern of Babylon is commensurate with the enemies of God, with people that are forever rejecting God as creator and his gospel. And the fruit of such rejection is that Babylon would make other nations drink the wine of the passion of sexual immorality. And of course, she is going to fall, but a little bit more about Babylon. Probably the original readers 
would have thought of the Roman Empire. And so some of you, that's your lens for this, and that's a fair lens, I think, to compare Babylon to the Roman Empire and to Rome, as John's writing this late in the first century A.D. And there's many applications of that with the ten waves of persecution in the Roman Empire among, to, toward Christians. So that's certainly true that the Roman Empire, by and large, rejected the gospel. However, especially the emperors, they must have. However, I think that it doesn't stop there either. I don't think it's just Judea, the Tower of Babel, Rome. But Babylon can be used to understand the coercive powers of the state throughout time, throughout the age in which we live. Babylon the Great has a lot in common with whatever influence in the century in which you live that causes people from every nation, to drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. It's interesting, right? Of, of all, the, of all the, the descriptive language that could have been used to follow the wine of the passion of Babylon, it's sexual immorality. You know, I, was, I was bothered and, and, and troubled when the, then, when the then president of the Southern Baptist Convention two years ago said, in a sermon in January of 2019, which I listened to several times to make sure I got it right, when J.D. Greer purported that the Bible whispers about sexual immorality. I was bothered by that. Now, I don't think he speaks for the entire Southern Baptist Convention because I know many people repudiated that messaging. I don't think that he speaks for them at all in that regard. But I was bothered and increasingly disgusted by a comment like that because the Bible says, woe to him who calls good evil and evil good. Now, I do understand that there are other sins that will get you to hell besides sexual immorality. And I understand sexual immorality is not the besetting sin for every single man and woman that comes into the Christian life. I get all of that. But to say that the Bible whispers about sexual immorality, I just don't know how you read the, balance, the Bible on balance and get there. Do you? And here's a prime example of it. Of all the descriptive language that could be used, and there's other things that will be used in Revelation. Here, the commensurateness of the whore of Babylon, yes, that's biblical language, is sexual immorality. So we would do well to define it, wouldn't we? Martin Luther said that it doesn't do to talk about 99 things and ignore the one thing that's obvious in your generation. I mean, we... Here, if ever there's been nations that have been turned and confused and turned from the gospel by a Babylon, we're living in the middle of it, right? I mean, it always has been. I'm not saying we're special in this regard. But, I mean, you talk about the identity and confusion that is, that is manifest right now because of the rejectors of the gospel. I mean, it's everywhere, right? Of course you love the sinner and you hate the sin. The old adage, right? This side of eternity, that's what you do. But you also articulate the sin that it might be repented of as part of accepting the gospel of salvation, right? So what is sexual immorality? Well, it's coming to us from the Greek word porneia, which is often carried straightforward and transliterated as pornography. I want you to know this morning, people, that pornography is a besetting sin for the Christian. And I want you to know that if you're caught up in it, it has to be 
warred at, war committed against it, declared against it, with every resource you can muster. Because it is not commensurate, it is not following you into the kingdom, as the end of this text articulates. you got to fight it. And you won't do that well alone. Besetting sins are not fought well alone. Because we get ourselves too much slack. We need the community, don't we? And, and I say that because I know the numbers. And I know that you're more than a number. And I know that in a group of any size, this is a besetting sin. And I want you to know it's commensurate with Babylon. It's not commensurate with the believers. You have to fight it. You've got you to get it out. Otherwise, you're swept up into the drunkenness, the, the malaise, the intoxicating indifference of the, the Babylon influence in the nations, and you've got to get it out. And I need to say a little bit more about porneia or sexual immorality, this, this word family and this particular word. It's translated in sometimes some of your Bibles as fornication. And that's fair. Pornea, fornication is fair. But what is fornication? Fornication is any type of sexual engagement with someone that is not your spouse, someone that you're not married to. So there's a family of sin there and sexual immorality that is before the covenant union of marriage. The same as adultery, if we were to use that term, it's a specific word, would be speaking specifically about nefarious behavior with someone that's not your spouse while you're in a one flesh union. That would be adultery. Fornication would be jettisoning the union altogether. It would be the it would be fornication today, the big word for that is cohabitation. It's engaging in married like behavior, asking the community of faith to whitewash it, and what it is is nothing more than fornication. It's a besetting sin. It has, to be, it has to be pushed aside. You have to fight it. Now, if you read Revelation, what you're going to see is what you're seeing right now before your eyes. Increasingly, no tolerance for God as Creator, for His standard of truth, for His design of gender and for relationships... And what you have to understand is, this is predicted. You have to understand that. You have to understand, like Timothy says, that there will come a time when times have come and time has come again, when the people will gather around them teachers who tell them what their itching ears want to hear with regard to besetting sins like fornication, sexual immorality, pornea. That's not people disinterested in spiritualist things. This is people that would have a form of godliness, as Timothy says otherwise, but would deny the power therein. Their itching ears want to hear. So this is not surprising. We must, must meditate on the connection between sexual immorality and Babylon's fall. And we get another opportunity to do this because in a couple of chapters more in Revelation, this is going to be spoken about using more descriptive language. But I didn't want to run past it today without saying that the rejection, those that reject the eternal gospel and they'll reject it forevermore, they're known for their support of and oftentimes engagement in 
porneia, sexual immorality. And it's not something to take pride in, folks. Pride cometh before the fall. It is something to reject. It's something to reject. God's covenant for us cost Jesus his life. It might cost us ours too. But read your Bibles, folks. Go read Genesis 9. How insulting to God, who will not be mocked on the last day, to take his sign of his covenant that we'd never flood the earth again and that he would provide an ark of salvation for believers and turn it into something based on sexual immorality. If you're going to put a rainbow flag on your social media account, describe Noah's covenant with it. Tell everybody what it is. It's God's promise not to kill us with a global flood again. And it's his promise that salvation would come but there would be many rejectors. You know, Noah's ark just had a few people on it. There were multitudes that died in the flood. I imagine at the end of time on the day of the Lord, there will be some, represented probably by the language of 144,000, those that follow the prophets and the apostles, there will be some, but there will be many that drown. And it is not loving to have the message that would save them and to withhold it and not project it. It's not loving. It's hateful. It's devilish. Babylon has fallen, has fallen with all of its sexual immorality. And we still hear from God. And we still tell people the truth. Because the truth will set them free. Because there is no discontinuity between God is love and God is truth. God is. You can't separate His attributes. You do so to your peril. This text says that they made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of their sexual immorality. Verse 9 says, Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of holy angels in the presence of the Lamb with a capital L. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, They'll have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. And we talked about the mark of the beast last week. It's a spiritual mark and probably not a physical mark. We talked about 666, 6 being the number of man, 7 being the number of God in creation. This was something we talked about last week. I'll not go back into that sermon again today, except for to say that you don't want to follow the beast. You can render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and you can render unto God's what is God's, but whatever image the beast has, you have an image of the of God. You are created in the image of God, the Imagio Dei, so you live for God. Whatever money you pay in taxes aside, you live for God. You can never bow the knee to Caesar. You live for God. We don't bow the knee to whatever king comes over Babylon. We live for God, and we must not get swept up in the wine of her passion, neither in a protectionary sense because of her power or in an adulterous sense because of our pleasure. Power and pleasure cannot motivate us Christ's passion does. There's a play on words here. It's the Greek word thamos, and it uses intoxicating wine to make its point. But the word passion in verse 8 is the same Greek word as is translated wrath in verse 10, based on context. And so there is a juxtaposition, there's a word play here. The wine of the passion of her sexual immorality in verse 8. The wine of God's wrath in verse 10. So just as ubiquitous 
as those that are following the harlot into her passion, her wrath, her sexual immorality, is to our eyes today by sight. So will one day, on the day of the Lord, the wine of God's passion, God's wrath, His acute wrath and His sustained steady wrath, will be seen by all. It will be a great divine spectacle, as one commentator said. We will see God's wrath poured out full strength, hundred proof, undiluted, into the cup of His anger. Friends, do you believe in the wrath of God? Jonathan Edwards famously preached, Sinners in the hands of an angry God. But we will not turn that around, will we? We won't be the people that turns that around. It's not God in the hand of angry, hands of angry sinners, as one has said. We don't put God on trial when we come to church, trying to find the favorite apologetic answers for rebels. No, we call ourselves and anyone else to repent of our sin and to trust in God who made us. And we will figure out the apologetic answers later. Too often we are so steeped in having just the right arguments for people that we forget that this is a volitional choice to trust Christ and we need the help of Christ in order to trust Him. And so what we must do is call people to repent even if we do not have PhDs and extragraduate degrees in apologetics and argumentation according to the reasons for the existence of God. I'm all for you studying that. Please do. I do. But for crying in a bucket, apologetics is not the thing that's going to get people into heaven. Jesus is. And so we give a reason for the hope that we have. But sometimes what is needed is specificity about the fact that you must bow your knee to the Lord or you'll spend eternity apart from Him. You must trust Christ. It says here that when God's wrath is poured out 100 proof, His anger will be righteous. He's so patient with us, as Peter says, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But that will run out and there will be a day where the rejectors will forever be tormented because they will be separate from the Lord and they will not be annihilated. This is an ongoing torment. It is an ongoing separation. And it says here that there is visibility by the holy ones, by the angels, the holy angels in verse 10, and by the Lamb. The Lamb and the angels are aware that the rejectors got what they wanted. Eternal separation from God and got what they deserved. Punishment for their sins because they would not accept the one way out from underneath their sins, which was the propitiating substitute sacrifice of Christ on a cross for them. It really gets that specific at the end. It becomes that clear. And it says in verse 11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest. They're the restless ones then. Day or night, the worshipers of the beast and the beast's image, whoever receives the mark of its name. Now, verses 8 through 11 frame this second point entirely, which I'll conclude by saying, is the eternal gospel rejected. These descriptors of Babylon, this is what describes those that reject the eternal gospel. And they will receive God's righteous wrath. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to end that way for you. You can repent of your sin and trust Christ. And believers, who is my primary audience, I want you to know today, you already have. And this is the promise for you. This is the beatitude for you coming up. It's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful third point. It's a brief two verses. 
but it's for you as a believer. And I want you to be encouraged by it today. I want you to be encouraged by it. It says, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commands of God and their faith in Jesus. Remember, we're hearing from angels today, but this loud voice is not declared necessarily to be an angel. This could be our Lamb Himself. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, write this down, John, imperative verb. Write it down, John. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Now much could be said. Let's say a few things about these two glorious verses. An eternal gospel having been projected by the believers. An eternal gospel having been rejected by the Babylonians. And now an eternal gospel that has been accepted and us forevermore with our Lord. It calls us in our acceptance to see ourselves as it says in another book of the Bible, as seated in the heavenlies. God sees us as that already, so we are called to endure as saints, to stay with the faith, whatever comes. And it says that in staying with this faith, verse 12, that we are the ones that keep the commandments and keep the faith or the belief, the, the, the trust in Jesus. I wonder this morning, have you been bitten by the bug of discouragement? I hope this morning that this text brings a healing balm to your bite. Be encouraged that there are other saints around you that are seeking endurance in Christ by His power, just like you are. You are not on an island all by yourself. There are other people, as I've often said from here, there are other people following. Take an example from Elijah. Do you remember Elijah? He wanted to go underneath a tree and die. He just wanted to get away from everything. And God, of all the things God could have given Elijah when he's on the run from Jezebel, after he's already seen fire, called down the prophets of Baal. You know, we've talked about this many times. What is it that God gave Elijah? He gave him a vision. A vision of what? He gave him a vision that he was not alone. There was 7,000 other knees that hadn't bowed to Baal, that, hadn't, that isn't going with Babylon, that isn't following her own, that isn't misappropriating what it is that God did for us in the ark. There is 7,000 people that says, you've got other people. There's a multitude of people also that's following me. Be encouraged as you are seeking to endure in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Keep the commands. Keep your faith in Jesus. And hear this beatitude that is for you. We're hearing from angels today, and I think now we're hearing from the Lamb Himself that John carried this message. He was obedient to follow that imperative to write it down. He brings this message to us, and it's like the Beatitudes from Matthew 5 summed up and brought right to you in the time of your suffering, in the day of your need. And it says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From here on out, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Indeed, blessed, says the Spirit. Why? Because you don't have the restlessness of the rejectors forevermore. No, no, no. Your torment is temporary because you will rest from your labors. You're going to rest from your labors. It's a beautiful, beautiful promise that you will have rest. Hebrews talks about eternal rest in the Lord. And the last stanza here says that their deeds follow them. This morning in Sunday school, Will Momberger is teaching a class on 
stewarding God's money or faithfulness in finance. And he spent a few weeks talking about this concept of eternal rewards and punishment. He's talked about how we steward our resources in this life actually matters. The decisions we make in this life actually has bearing, that God is watching. It's, it's not this great big general broad sweeping approach to everything that we say and do, but that actually, like this verse says, their deeds follow them. Our deeds follow us to heaven. Now, I don't want to create some kind of a of a works-based salvation feel with that, neither did he, as he talked about this morning carefully in his teaching. But I do just want to let the text stand on its own. Your deed's going to follow you. As a believer, there's something important about living as a believer now. Like, what you do, God sees it. He cares. It's not that if you slip up, slip up and you do something wrong, suddenly the hammer's coming down and you lost your salvation. That's not what I'm trying to preach at all. I'm simply saying that your works follow you into eternity. So get working. Like you haven't, you haven't entered your rest yet. While there's still light out, while you're still in this life, labor for the Lord. You see, in the juxtaposition of this text, the Babylonians live as if this life is for suburban rest. And the people of God live as if this work of labor and projecting the gospel must be done. And we're restless, right, in that. Even as we rest in Him, even as we have a day in which we attempt to rest, we're restless. And then that flips in eternity, doesn't it? Because in eternity, the torment, the restlessness of the Babylonians is apparent in the presence of the Lamb and the holy angels forever. And what do we as the people of God have? Our deeds follow us into heaven, and what do we have eternally? Rest. Let's pray. God, thank you for bringing us together today to hear from you. We certainly have. We ask that you would drill these truths deep into our hearts, that we might enter into your rest one day that you bought for us, and we might enjoy you forevermore. God, I pray for those that won't. I pray that, as the late Charles Spurgeon said, that you would save the elect and elect some more. I don't know who it is that you're working on right now, but I know this is part of their story, and I pray they would repent of their sin and trust you. I don't want anybody that I've loved on earth to face eternal separation from you and all that it entails. And they don't have to. Help them to fear you, to give to you, to worship you, and to turn from the wicked immorality of Babylon that will assuredly fall. We gather to the praise of your glory. And we thank you for opening the eyes of our hearts that we might live for you. Thank you for your blessed salvation. In Jesus' name. Let's take about 30 seconds to think about this before we conclude with an amen.